This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Leslie Buck discusses her new book, Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese explains what President Trump's proposed budget means for the arts. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by NPD BookScan. What's happening in hardcover nonfiction, Mark? We've got a new number one. We do. Uh, and this is going on uh, with some of the diet books we have. This is, and, and health books, Fat for Fuel, A Revolutionary Diet to Combat Cancer, Boost Brain Power and Increase Your Energy by Dr. Joseph Mercola. And uh, just looking down a little bit, uh, some maybe non-diet books, we have... Um, Poppy, My Story by David Ortiz. It's interesting. That was at, that's at number six. Uh, about a decade ago, he had a book, a memoir come out called Big Poppy. So this is a follow-up to that. And then at number 11, what is a Bible? How an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything by Rob Bell. It's Har- Harper One. We say in this that Bell, a sometimes controversial but undeniably popular author, speaker, and pastor, has written an introduction to the Bible that is one part biblical theology and interpersonal principles and one part spiritual travelogue. We say, despite not being an in depth theological treatise, this popular presentation prompts readers to see the Bible as a thoroughly human production meant to elicit questions and connection rather than provide firm answers in theological foes. And then I just want to take another look just a little bit. I want to, uh, another sports figure at 21. I'm just going to jump right down to 21. Coach Wooden and me, our 50-year friendship on and off the court. This is by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And this is about the coach who trained him at UCLA and led the team to three NCAA titles in the late 60s. And we say he, meaning uh, Abdul-Jabbar, shrewdly removes any mysticism from the famous friendship, showing Wooden as more than a pyramid of success figurehead. At Wooden's memorial service, uh, Abdul-Jabbar recalls, we all spoke about the lessons we learned from him rather than the games we had won. And what about in fiction? In hardcover fiction, we have a new number two that's no middle name, The Complete Collected Jack Reacher Short Stories by Lee Child. There have been many, many, many Jack Reacher books. This is a collection of short fiction. Um, Some of the stories are of novella length. They're 12 in all, and they cover a lot of Jack Reacher's life before, during, and after his military career. Uh, Our review says that Child is at his best in the longer entries, but this volume demonstrates what his fans already know. He's a born storyteller and an astute observer. And then continuing the thriller theme at number five we have testimony by scott turrow um, obviously a very well-known best-selling author of thrillers uh, we say he movingly evokes the horrors of the balkan wars in this gripping thriller that nonetheless falls short of his best work and uh, in this case the uh, protagonist is bill ten boom the former u.s attorney for illinois kindle county uh, who's taking a position with the international criminal court in the hague investigating a 2004 war crime 
Moving down a little bit at number seven, we have Wendy's Button Box by Stephen King and Richard Chismar. Obviously, everybody knows who Stephen King is. Within the horror field, uh, Richard Chismar is nearly as well-known, um, really big name. And uh, the two of them have collaborated on this uh, little short novel, um, though it's a $25 hardcover for less than 200 pages. But if you're a Stephen King fan, you'll want to pick it up because it's set in Castle Rock, Maine, which is the setting of many of King's mm. most popular works. And in this case, it's about a 12-year-old who's offered a magic box um, that will give her what she wants as long as she only presses the lever and not the buttons. And of course, one day she presses a button and uh, terrible things begin to happen. Our review says that this bite-sized gem of a story packs quite a punch and the only complaint readers will likely have is that it isn't longer. And uh, then at number 13, Full Wolf Moon by Lincoln Child. We gave this a starred review, said it's a scary atmospheric novel, the fifth one featuring Yale history professor Jeremy Logan, who's an investigator of unexplained phenomena. Uh, We say fans of The X-Files will be enthralled by this installment. And those are the big titles on the hardcover fiction list. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Leslie Buck tells us about her groundbreaking apprenticeship in a Japanese garden. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Yvette Johnson, the author of The Song and the Silence. And you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Leslie Buck on the line. Her new book is Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto. Hi, Leslie. So glad you could join us. Hi, Rose and Mark. So you are a garden designer and an aesthetic pruner uh, in California. Can you tell us first a little bit about your garden designing work? Well, I'm actually a different kind of designer than most landscapers out here. I, I've been trained as a senteshi, which is what they call a pruner in Japan. And in Japan, the gardens are both, first they're designed and then somebody builds the gardens, and they're, when they're building the garden, they have a lot of design say. And then the pruner, who's also the maintenance person, um, designs the garden over time as the trees are, and shrubs are growing. So you can have a tree get five feet tall or let it go to 40, or um, a shrub can be open, or it can be really thick to block a house. So... That's the type of design work I do. It's over the years. Now, do you do so for corporate uh, or or private? Who are your clients? Mostly private homeowners Mm -hmm. and um, some public gardens. I'll go in and train the, the gardeners to do this specialized kind of pruning I do, which is it's very natural pruning so that after I'm done, you can't even tell it's been... It's been touched. Um, for instance, I, I did a tree once at Green Gulch Zen Center, and I spent about three hours on the tree, and some friends came by, and I said, which of these trees, and I pointed to three, do you think I just pruned? And I had, I had lowered the one I was working on by a third, and they all picked another tree. <laughs> Much to their, they were a little horrified, and I said, no, that's such a compliment. You The tree I pruned, we needed it lower so it wouldn't block light from the other shrubs, but it still looks completely natural, and that's the kind of pruning I do. And and actually what they teach 
mostly in Japan is this kind of very natural pruning. Not always, but often misunderstood in American Japanese gardens where things are sheared or miniaturized. Most of the gardens in Kyoto or in Japan are very natural looking. And that's, that's their goal is to, to have it look, not just look like any nature, but like a poem is an essence of nature. That's a beautiful sentiment. What led you to this style, which is so different from Western-style topiaries, for example? I grew up, very fortunately, um, behind, there was a little forest behind my house in Oklahoma City. And when I was um, a little girl, we'd play out there and climb trees. And I think I developed a love for nature. And as I grew up, I started noticing that um, Japanese aesthetic often has nature in it. You know, I'd watch Japanese movies and I'd see these beautiful, dramatic nature scenes where they're, they're using nature to express the story. And then I went to Merritt College Horticulture School and I met my um, mentor, Dennis Makashima. And he was, he was just giving a talk one day and he was talking about a, a tree he had pruned and kind of inferring that maybe there was a spirit in that tree. And I just said, you know, I don't know what this guy does, but I'm going to take a class from him. And um, I ended up studying pruning with him. And, um, and eventually I, I saw pictures of gardens in Japan, and it looked like what I was doing. But um, people I talked to at Japanese garden conferences would always say, you know, oh, you can't learn pruning in America. You can't learn Japanese garden pruning out here um, and kind of laugh at me. So I thought, I want to go to Japan and see where I'm at. Um, and sure enough, I mean, once, once I, it took a while to find an apprenticeship in Japan. It, it cannot be set up ahead of time traditionally. Mostly you have to go to Japan and ask in person, and you have to have a referral from someone who worked in the company. So um, even going to Japan was a, a bit of a risk, but I thought I'd just, um, I'd try. So you ended up just going to Japan and mm-hmm. trying to find someone uh, there. How, how did that work for you? I I went there with just three references, mm-hmm. and um, the first few weeks I just visited gardens and um, tried to meet up with people. I finally secured an interview with the company by chance, and um, it's almost you know like my whole journey had happened. Things kept happening by chance. I it's kind of the way I travel. I. Um, I kind of go towards my goal and just see what happens. So I was there in Japan, and um, somebody offered to to translate this interview that had been offered to me at the last minute, and um, I ended up in a fairly sizable company in Kyoto in a pruning pruning crew um, where we got to work in private homes, monasteries, and, and eventually an imperial garden. Wow. 
So you were the first American woman to apprentice with this company. What what was that like? I mean, you said you needed a translator for the interview. How did you communicate with your with your colleagues? Yes. Well, my colleagues were mostly men. <laughs> there were a few few women in the office, and um, so when you're learning a craft, um, there's very little uh, speaking. Uh, instruction interaction that takes place in Japan. It's mostly you're supposed to watch what others are doing, and then at some point they say, do it, and you attempt to do it, and they'll tell you if you're wrong, and you keep doing it until you get it right. Um, so, of course, since I'm a woman, um, and I was with these men who I admire, um, I didn't want to let them down, so I I try so hard. <laughs> I'd always think, you know, you're representing all women on earth, Leslie. Um, <laughs> you've got to do this. And um, later, someone told me who was Japanese, you know, I always told them I couldn't keep up with them. They are always so fast. And um, this friend of mine who's Japanese, he said, well, of course you couldn't keep up with them. They weren't going to let a girl beat them. So they might have even gone faster because I was there trying to go so fast. Um, but they always they always wanted to challenge me. That was, you know, I kept trying to do it right and, and be successful for them, you know, to honor my teacher, my mentor back home. But what they, my crew and my crew boss and, and the company in Japan, what they were really interested in was how hard I was going to try you know, how how much I was going to sacrifice that day, how fast I was going to run or sweat, or when I, you know, I, I got sick when I was working at the Imperial Garden and I was coughing. And the boss said, you know, Do you, are you sick? And I just said, no. <laughs> but but they knew they were pushing me, and they, they admire that, you know, if you can push yourself... Each day, at the end of the day, I could tell myself, hey, I feel good about myself. I succeeded. I tried my best. Um, it's not necessarily based on how well I did. And I, I always feel like that's what they were trying to teach me, that it wasn't, it wasn't about how much I succeeded. It was how hard I tried. So in our starred review, we say that you have uh, uh, as good an eye for cultural dissonance as for pines that need pruning. So tell us a little bit about that cultural dissonance. You've already told us a little bit about the, the men you were uh, working with. What about in general, American uh, versus maybe Japanese dissonance? Oh, um, well, one difference is uh, with, say, gardening, which um, goes further into culture, is um, they, they're keeping their gardens a lot cleaner. <laughs> There's a much more detail going on. It, it looks natural, but, but it's a special place in nature that's, that's found its rest. Mm. Um, and as a gardener, um, there's just a certain intensity to how hard they're willing to work. It's almost like um, I find, you know, Americans... Often, what really makes us feel pride is if we come up with a unique idea. And um, in Japan, my garden colleagues, you know, they're, they're going to feel good about doing what they're told, what's been, what their teacher 
what their boss or mentor has taught them and what their mentor taught them going back hundreds of years, they feel very good about that. Um, they can always come up with unique ideas later, but um, they, can, they can feel good about um, following tradition and, and then do very quality work. And like I said, there's a sense of, you know, they have to feel like they've sacrificed a little each day. Um, So maybe instead of when they finish a job, instead of walking to the boss, you know, what's next or, you know, waiting for break, they'll run to the boss and they'll, what's next? Oh, you know, carry that debris over. Well, they'll grab not just, you know, one debris pile, but like two at once and run them across the way. So I was always wondering, wow, you know, what's what's making them go? They're they're on a set salary. Um, but as we went on, as my when I worked there, my back muscles got so strong. I felt like a muscular deer or something, working um, six, sometimes seven days a week, ten, twelve hours. Um, I slowly got this feeling of how good it feels to to push just a little bit further than what you think you can do, and, and not for money, but so that you feel good at the end of the day. So I, I like, as you've described them as crews, I mean, I think here back you know in the U.S. and New Jersey, where, where we have landscaping crews come out, they come in, do a quick clean, a quick cut, and then they're out. Um, this seems like a very different crew, uh, but still part of a bigger company. You talked about a company. How, uh, what's the size of the companies and the crews that you worked with? Mm. Um, well, I will say, in, first, in terms of crews in the United States, most gardeners I talk to, I mean, they'll do what they're asked, but so many want to do better. They, they love nature. That's what all of us gardeners have in common. And, of course, they'd be open to learning more about natural pruning and doing more, bringing out the beauty in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, um, the garden company I worked in is... Um, hundreds of years old. They're known in Kyoto and they do international projects and I don't know, there's dozens um, and of people, three dozen who work in the company. Um, They had multiple crews going on, which is a little bit unusual. Often in Japan you have a company and it's smaller and um, each day the crew, they'll either be maintenance gardeners or pruners, specialized natural pruners, or they're doing rock work or fence work, um, landscaping. Um, And our company was so big, they had separate crews. Like they had one whole crew putting in a um, public garden in Tokyo, and I only saw them at the end of the year. So it worked out very well for me because what I studied here with my mentor was natural pruning so I um, pretty much got to do that my whole apprenticeship we're going to take a quick break don't go away book lovers everywhere love publishers weekly radio now on iheartradio.com PW radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news 
PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Leslie Buck, author of Cutting Back. So tell us about some of the people you met and worked with, such as your crew boss, Nakaji. Mm. Nakaji, um, he never gave me a compliment my whole time, uh, three months in the company. And um, yet he complimented me every day because no matter how poorly I did the day before on a pine, or how good, <laughs> he'd always give me a pine a little bit harder. He, I often, you know, I think, oh, I just did so miserably. Oh, he'll never give me a, a pine again tomorrow. I'm going to be raking. And, um, but actually, the next day, he'd give me a pine a tiny bit harder because he had faith in me that I could learn. Um, and uh, one time we were working in an imperial garden, and he was teaching me how to use a traditional scythe, which my company used to trim hedges. And they'd, there's a small blade at the end of a stick, and they'd sharpen it every few hours. And they'd swing the stick with the blade at the end like a baseball bat and trim hedges that way. And that's the traditional way to trim it um, in that garden. So that's what they did. Um, and if you let go of the stick, I always thought I might behead someone. Um, and it was difficult for, for the company to allow me access to work in the garden, I think because of this um, site called the Kama. So when I practiced, my crew boss, he would stand in front of me about 10 feet away and he'd motion for me to swing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of motioned him aside, and he just waved his hand and looked really angrily at me and said, swing it, uh, with his, you know, typical hand motion. He, he'd speak fluent Japanese to me, and I, I couldn't understand a word, but I got, I got what he was saying. Mm. So I'd swing it again. And later, it was um, a man who said, you know what? He was telling you that he had faith in you. And, and that, that kind of thing, you know, that boss, he taught me to have faith in myself physically. Um, so he was, he, he couldn't talk to me in words, but he taught me so much with um, his actions and his requests. And that's how Japanese mentors are. I, I feel like in general, they're Mentorship is a part of every craft, and it's a part of gardening. So um, they're trained very early to be a, a mentor. And what did you learn about yourself while you were there? I did do quite a bit of soul searching. Um, I, I learned, you know, they were teaching me um, pine pruning and cleaning the garden and... Um, you think, oh, you know, that's all I learned. But actually, just like this boss was teaching me pride, um, I, I feel like that that was one of the bigger things I got was this general sense of pride, like how to have pride in myself 
as as a gardener in the United States. Because, um, you know, when I work out here, I'm pretty dirty at the end of the day. Um, and uh, I go home, and maybe people don't notice me that much. Um, so, and, you know, I, I understand that I'm doing something I love, and um, I'm not going to expect to pay like a doctor or a lawyer. But um, I, I couldn't choose any other profession. I, I love working with trees, and um, it's so much in my heart. It's like a, it's it is my wealth, and um, and these gardeners they taught me that I don't need to look to others for that that sense of pride. I don't need to have a lot of money, even if I I make money. That's okay. <laughs> so it's good to have goals. Um, but I don't need to have that um, to feel good about myself. It's, it's how hard I work every day um, and how if I'm going to do quality every single day, just like I, I always say, it's sort of like raising, they worked in gardens like we raise families. You know, we just put our heart into it. We spend that extra hour reading to our child at night when we're falling asleep before them. That's how they work in the gardens. Um, so they taught me that that way of going through life, where you um, you do your best, you just you do your best at every moment. You try and do quality, and and it makes life so much more richer. So you were also educated at UC Berkeley. Um, you went to Bordeaux to study the arts. And, um, what was what was it like going from uh, that that Western style to the to the Japanese style. How do they differ? Mm, yeah, the um, well, definitely. Since I was in the field of gardening, I mean, when I studied at the university, it was in classrooms, and I was at the um, the Bordeaux School of Fine Arts, and also the University of Bordeaux on an exchange through the university. And um, once again, I was inside. Um, I ended up doing um, painting that was collage. And I think, and I would go outside and I would pick up objects off the ground and plants and I'd incorporate those in my paintings. I think I needed more tactile. And the Japanese culture, they understand hands-on apprenticeships. Um, They're very admired as if you're a great artist um, or a well-known scientist graduating from college. Um, when I walked around, I had a special um, headscarf, and I, I talk about these outfits they wear in, in the memoir, um, but one part of it is a terry cloth towel around your head, or it's a, it's a, no, it's a headband that goes around your head, and if you put it on, it signals to people that you're busy and you're in serious concentration, and no one would bother you, because... <laughs> They'd often see me in this traditional outfit, the public, and people would come up to me and they'd start speaking to me in Japanese, and I actually don't speak Japanese that well. Um, So I was always a little embarrassed. So if I put this special um, wrapper on my head, then people would know that, hey, she's she's at work. and, And they just had a certain... They always told me, you know... Oh, thank you for studying one of our crafts. And I could tell that the gardeners were were very respected out there, in part because the um, people going to 
they work in a company, and then as they're working in the company, they learn over time. They're given harder and harder um, duties, and that's an apprenticeship. It's slowly learning as you're working. Um, it, it does happen out here, I believe, in the carpentry fields, but um, but they have you know vocation. They have schools that teach landscaping and gardening too. You and and that's something. Um, apprenticeship, learning a craft, is is less done out here in America. Um, a little, more, it's more understood in Europe and Japan. So the cutting back of of the title, uh, we, we get that as cutting back pine trees, uh, limbs. Was that a metaphor for anything else? Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I think I think this journey for me. I remember before I left, um, I, I worry a lot when I travel. I am very anxious, and um, I don't learn languages easily. So I told myself, um, but I said, please give me something that I can hang on to so that I'm not quite so anxious when I'm doing this journey. And um, and I found when I was traveling in Japan that... Um, there was, there was almost help surrounding me if I just look for it. So it's like getting at the essence of the tree. You know, if you look closely, if, you, if you're aware, if you're pruning, um, you're cutting away this excess and you find this beauty within. And there's many tricks, and each tree has this particular beauty, and you study beauty in nature. But as you're pruning with it, you're, you're just in tune with what what's what you're seeing and as i traveled um i just started doing a a kind of trick where i just noticed things around me as i as i went along like one day i was particularly um feeling pretty depressed it was before i found my apprenticeship and i didn't know what was going to happen and i'm i'm so intense i just can't I can't relax when I have a, a goal in mind. And I saw um, a lantern, a stone lantern, and I, I decided to go up and look at it. And it was a carving of a, a man playing a flute. And I thought, wow, some artist chipped away at this. He probably knew he'd seen someone who was playing a flute. And he did, could have done this hundreds of years ago. And here I can almost hear the flute today that this person carved out. It's, it's my friend today. And it was just so special. I was like, yeah, he's playing just to encourage me to go on. So each day, just little things would happen um, that would encourage me. Um, and luckily, I, I kept a journal because um, by the end of my uh, time there, it, the work, the work schedule is so intense. Um, when I came back, I, I was, I just looked back and I said, that was just really difficult. You know, I couldn't even look at my journal for three years after I came back. Um, it was almost tra- traumatic. But when I did start writing about it, I could see these details that I had noticed. And I started seeing themes and and special lessons and it was almost like there was so much coming at me um 
I had to cut back. <laughs> I had to go in there and try and find the beauty in my story. And, and writing it, just like observing as I move around in life, it, it helped me ruminate and, and do that, seeking the beauty in the story. We've been talking with Leslie Buck, and you can find her book, Cutting Back, in stores right now. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese tells us about proposed cuts to federal arts funding, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about proposed cuts to the NEA and NEH. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Rose. Hello, Mark. Hello. So, so these proposed cuts are cutting it out entirely. Yeah, these proposed cuts are actually eliminations. Um not in the first year. Actually, they, they made the directors of each agency, uh, including the Institute of Museum and Library Services, which administers virtually all federal library funding, they made them actually submit scaled-back budgets that included just enough money to wind down the agencies in a year. So there's wow. small pools of money in there, but that money is for them to basically off themselves. That's, wow. Wow. So is there any kind of rationale behind these cuts other than arts are bad? What What's going on here? Yeah. Uh, the rationale is not deficit reduction. So the whole theme of this budget is twofold. It, it's tax reduction and increasing defense. Mm-hmm. But also there's a line in the budget that, that speaks of redefining the proper role of the federal government in America. Mm-hmm. So this is a $4.1 trillion budget annual arts and library funding is less than $400 million. So this is not about deficit reduction. This is more likely about the redefining the priorities of the federal government part. And clearly this government, the Trump government, does not think that uh, books and reading and literacy and the humanities are a priority. Wow. So how, how are people reacting to this? Pretty badly, as you might imagine. But I wouldn't say people are at this point giving into it. They're organizing, they're fighting back, and they have significant bipartisan support. This is not the first time the NEH and the NEA have been targeted. Library funding has always been under pressure. And just three weeks ago, all of those agencies, including the IMLS, actually got small funding increases uh, in the fiscal year 2017 budget, which was passed belatedly on March 5th and uh, expires in September 30th. So I would venture to say that uh, the majority of Congress does not agree with the Trump administration's budget priorities. And there's been a lot of librarian activism. I mean, last we spoke with you, I guess it was three weeks ago, you told us about your time in D.C. What is their reaction now? What is the librarian's reaction? What is their call to arms right now. They are engaged big time. And I'll say this about the library community, especially over the last 15 years or so, they've got some game on the Hill. They have really amped up the way they work on Capitol Hill, their lobbying presence. They've brought in a lot of allies and they have been actually fighting this battle for some time. They've been gearing up for this fight since before Trump was inaugurated, you know, as soon as he was elected, uh, they began getting ready for this day. And they've got a lot of support. 41, 42 senators have signed what's known as a Dear Appropriator letter, uh, which is sort of a, a, a pledge that a, a 
a legislator makes and it shows other legislators the, what their priorities are. So over a third of the House has also signed it as well. So they have a significant base of support in Congress to work from. And also there was a group of businesses that signed a letter urging Congress to fund libraries as well. Publishers, a number of publishers included. And that's now become an organized effort called the Corporate Committee for Library Investment. Mm-hmm. And more than 80 companies have now signed on to that, which is a smart thing for them to do because almost all of that those budget dollars flow to the bottom lines of publishers and other service providers. So there, there's quite a bit of uh, support for library funding uh, among American business and also among the public. I mean, libraries are extremely popular uh, in their communities. I think what the Trump administration is banking on is that most people don't know what's on the line here, that they might be able to sneak one past them. I can tell you libraries are not going to let that happen. Yeah, you don't usually uh, yeah. think think of librarians as easy to fool or people <laughs> who who don't read what's in front of them. And they are not quiet as yeah. uh, <laughs> as as their uh, stereotype goes, but they indeed are, are quite vocal. And you know, just this week, you wrote a uh, great piece for us on how the NEH chair resigned over this. Yeah, uh, and you can imagine. I mean, the William D. Adams has has been in that post for some time, and. I think he probably just threw his hands up and said, I, I'm not going to sit here and dismantle the agency I love or deal with the politics of this administration anymore. And he did. Rather than oversee the destruction, mm-hmm. potential destruction of his agency, he, he stepped aside. And you know, the NEH is... It's been incredibly important in American society. I think it often comes under fire from conservatives. Last year, I saw William Adams speak in Orlando at the ALA meeting, and it was the 50th anniversary of the NEH. Mm -hmm. And he spoke beautifully, and he reminded everyone in the audience that it's no accident that the NEH was established in the middle of the Great Society legislative push, right alongside the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, because memory plays an important part in democracy. Mm. You know, without memory, we don't have democracy. And given everything that's going on now with the autocratic tendencies of our current president, shall we say, I think it's it's important that we realize that an attack on the NEH uh, also hits at the foundations of our democracy. So um, what are the next steps for these activists? Uh, You said they're already getting people in Congress to sign on, uh, pledging support. What else is happening? Sure. So, well, as you know, Congress actually makes the budget. The president, uh, this budget that Trump and and the administration puts out is more or less a blueprint. So Congress will now take this document and they'll chew it over and they'll send it to various committees and they'll come up with some sort of top line requests for, you know, what they want for different agencies for their budgets. And there's another document that will be coming out in sometime this spring from the administration that will further detail uh, their tax policies and, and other things as well. But suffice it to say, this budget is dead on arrival. All presidential budgets are dead on arrival. Mm. This one is especially dead on arrival. But where it can be useful, because this is the second budget that Trump has now put in. March right. 16th, he put in a budget proposing the same thing. This is going to be an incredibly potent tool for supporters of libraries and supporters of the arts to rally support. Uh, Again, as we said, this is not about the deficit. This is about redefining the role of the federal government. Uh, And I think most people would agree that every dollar you put into a library comes back uh, times whatever, times four or five into the community. So I think you're going to see a strong PR effort by librarians. You're going to see a lot of them rounding up support in their communities and on the Hill. And I think that this Trump budget is going to be an important tool for them. 
Well, it sounds um, really powerful and important and like we're going to see a lot of organizing happening around this. Um, do we have any sense of what the timing is for Congress putting together their own version of the budget? No sense of timing on this, but uh, probably, especially given all the other investigations that are now just getting underway, I wouldn't expect it to happen quickly. As I said earlier, the, the, the budget for 2017 uh, was passed in May of this year, so right. it's, and it expires in September. So you're probably going to see something like that, if not longer, hold over. You could see indefinite continuing resolutions uh, funding the government for some time, uh, which is problematic. That's not an ideal way to govern. Um, right. and it, it certainly you know, does not set out good priorities for the government. And I should point out, too, that the Library Services, the Museum and Library Services Act, which is the broader legislation that enables all library funding, mm -hmm. is up for reauthorization every, I'm not sure, five, ten years. It has to be reauthorized. Congress can still give money without reauthorizing it. But if they were to take up this bill and reauthorize it, it would stop all this foolishness about eliminating the agencies, etc. So I think what you may see is a, a broader effort from librarians and in Congress to make sure that that bill is mm. reauthorized, um, regardless of what happens with the budget. Great. Great. Well, thank you, Andrew. Um, always good to have you here explaining these complicated things in such clear language. We really appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Next week, we'll have two great interviews from the PW Radio archives for you to listen to while we're at Book Expo. We'll be back the following week with lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on Audiobook Radio. Net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 